I mentioned this Wednesday night, but I'd appreciate it if you'd pray for Brother Adam. Uh, one of Adam's good friends, one of his best friends from college, uh, was out ice climbing last week and fell off into Lake Superior. They still haven't found his body. The Coast Guard has officially declared him dead. Uh, unfortunately. So please pray for Brother Adam and I. We're actually going to make a whirlwind trip up to Gaylord, Michigan. This is an odd prayer request. Pray that it doesn't snow there. Uh, they average about 20 feet or so of snow. You remember that lovely thing, Dr. Ward. And uh, I don't want to drive in that. Um, and I don't know if I trust Adam's driving enough to trust him to drive in that. I don't know. I just never ridden with Adam. So we're going to find out. But please pray for us. We're going to leave after school Thursday, uh, be gone on Friday and making it directly back on Saturday so we don't miss church. But uh, uh, pray for uh, his name is James Bake. Pray for his wife, Lauren. Um, they're they're doing a they hired a private firm to try to at least find his body. Uh, lake Superior is known as the lake that doesn't give up its dead. It's got more shipwrecks buried at the bottom of it than any other major lake in the world. Um, so just for her sake and closure's sake, please pray that they find him. Um, so I'd appreciate that. Judges chapter 4. We're going to just kind of, by way of recap, we're going to reread the first seven verses. We got through roughly verse 6, 7 last week. So let's just kind of start at verse 1 and we'll reread a little bit to catch ourselves up. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead. Remember Ehud uh, killed Eglon, freed the Israelites from Moabite bondage. Does anybody remember how long was Israel free under Ehud's reign as judge. 80 years. It's actually the longest chunk of freedom that the Israelites had during any of uh, the judges here. So 80 years, he's now dead, and Israel almost immediately jumps back into doing the wrong thing. Verse 2, And the Lord said unto, uh, sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, uh, that reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in Harasheth of the Gentiles. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had 900 chariots of iron. In 20 years he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. So we're introduced to Jabin, king of Canaan. We talked about him last week. And the captain of his host, if you will, the general of his army, Sisera. And I made the connection last week that very likely because of the fact that this says that he was king of Canaan and where he was located and one really key factor in here, he's got chariots of iron. This is likely the same group of people that uh, Judah and Simeon weren't able to defeat near the end of chapter one. Because remember the Bible says they came up against an enemy with chariots of iron and could not defeat them. Now granted, this is not the same king. This is somewhere around 130, 140 years into the future. Not the same king, but more than likely the same group of people. Are we okay? Because chariots of iron was a fairly rare thing in this area at the time, which gave these this group, Jabin and Sisera, gave them probably the most advanced military technology of the day. Okay? That would be like World War I when the Germans introduced tanks. We had nothing that could combat against a tank. Granted, those tanks moved a whopping four miles an hour. You could outmarch that, quite literally. But we didn't have vehicles that could drive through buildings. Are we okay? So at the very beginning of World War II, when the Germans introduced tanks, the Allies had nothing that could go against that just because they had superior technology. We, we good so far? So that's where Israel's at, and for 20 years... They had no hope of combating that. Verse 4, And Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, she judged Israel at this time. At that time. So we're introduced to Deborah. We talked about her quite a bit last week, and I'm not going to go into her backstory uh, too much here, but we were given two 
very interesting notes about her. Not only is she the judge, which makes her the only female judge that God ever chose, but she's also a prophetess. And later on down here, we're going to actually get into it today, going into verses 8 and 9, we're actually given one of Deborah's prophecies. And by the way, only one. And it does come true, because if you read through the law, a prophet has to be proven true, or what happens to them? They get killed, because they're a false prophet. So God calls her a prophetess, and then chooses to record one of her prophecies, and then chooses to tell us exactly how it came true, proving that she was, in fact, a prophetess. I think that's, that's a key factor right there. Are we okay? That's, that's something to pay attention to. So we're introduced to her. And look at verse 5. And she dwelt under the palm tree of Deborah, between Ramah and Bethel, in Mount Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. And we mentioned this last week. This, is, this, this was actually a pretty common idea. The judge would find one spot and just stay there. Read through the Old Testament. Um, a lot of times it was at the gates of a, whatever particular city would be. You'd go there and that's where the council would meet. That's where, if you will, the king or whoever was in charge of judging this or that would be near wherever the gates were. Why? Because that's where all the comings and goings happened. Okay, so she apparently didn't choose a city. She chose a palm tree. And I have no, no explanation for that. Why in the world she chose a palm tree over anything else? It could be. They weren't in charge of their own destiny. You do realize they're in servitude to another country at this point. So she had to choose a fairly random spot. So the palm tree, and look at it. They, the Bible directly tells us it was the palm tree of Deborah. Maybe it was one of the only palm trees in that particular area. So if somebody came looking, it was the only landmark to find. By the way, I had mentioned last week, Cariotti developers over on Industrial Plains Road, they got rid of all their palm trees. So kind of ruined my entire illustration last week. I drove by it on Sunday afternoon. I was like, oh, so don't go there. The palm trees aren't there. You can't actually pinpoint that place anymore. I'm so sorry I lied. All right, so verse 6, and she sent and called Barak. I want to pause here. I don't know why we pronounce his name Barak when we had a president named Barak with the same spelling. I don't know if that messed with anybody else's head over the last week, but I've been dwelling on that probably more than anything else over this last week. It doesn't matter if you pronounce it Barack or Bayrack, it's the same dude, okay? I don't, that's just, seriously, every day I've been reading through this, and I'm like, why do we call it that? I, my brain works weird. I apologize. Okay? She sent and called Barak, the son of Abinoam, out of Kadesh Naphtali, and said unto him, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulun? And I will draw unto thee uh, to the river Kishon, Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into thine hand. And this is about where we left off last week. We're introduced to Barak, Barak, however you want to pronounce his name there. And one of the very first things Deborah says to him is, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded? And again, this is phrased very specifically, and this is where I left off last week. This is phrased in such a way that she seems to be reiterating something that God's already been telling him. Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded? Not, thus saith the Lord, as in, this is the first time you are hearing this command. So think about this. She calls for him. 
where I, we don't, I don't know how long that journey was from Kadesh Naphtali to the palm of Deborah. I don't know how, how far that was. It could have been a day's journey, two days, because the, the idea of the palm of Deborah, it does give us an in-between of two cities, but doesn't give us a specific location. So I can't get a specific Google Maps directions to figure out how long that took. But he had to be running through his mind the whole time. What in the world does Deborah want? I wonder what she's going to say. Huh. Why she call me? And if this is something God's already told him, you have to imagine that that's running through his head. I wonder if she's going to talk about what God's been telling me. I wonder. That, <clears throat> Could you also maybe imagine, because he's a human being, and we happen to be human beings, I hope she doesn't say anything about that, that whole fighting Sisera thing. I, I don't know if I want to do that. I don't know if I want to go through that. These guys have been ser in servitude for 20 years, and God's calling him to do something massive. You ever had God tell you to do something and you didn't want to do it? Yeah, we're, we're human beings. And there's a lot of moments where we're, we start arguing with God. I, I just, as, as a human reading through this, that, that, that little trip he had to go talk to Deborah. And then the very first words out of her mouth is, hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded? And he's like, oh, stink. She knows. By the way, for him... Think about this. Everybody's apparently known that she's a prophetess because they know where to find her. She's the judge because everybody went to ask judgment of her. That's literally what the Bible says. Look at the end of verse 5. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Everybody knows who she is. God just proved to Barak on his possibly his first introduction to this woman that she was in fact a woman of God because she knew what God had already told him. That's a key factor. I'm going to use that term like a million times today. Are we okay? Because there's little pieces in this storyline, this account that God puts in for our benefit. Because we're reading this several thousand years later. He puts these things in place for our benefit so that we know he's telling the truth. Because he's God who cannot lie. So when he puts all these little pieces in place and we actually pay attention and we see Again, big picture, we see how all these puzzle pieces fit together. It proves that God has control of every little aspect down to the minutest detail. Okay? Let's jump right into the new stuff here, if you will. I do want you to pay attention to one more thing in verse 7. The very first portion of verse 7, if you would actually, whether you mark in your Bible or not, something to pay attention to. And I will draw, un draw unto thee to the river Kaishan. That part right there plays a massive, massive part in what happens later on. How many of you did your homework and read through chapter 4 and chapter 5 this week? Wow, like six of you. Good job. Yay, gold stars for you. Everybody else, you are now flunking Sunday school. Congratulations. <laughs> all right? Which means you're going to have to repeat and come back to Sunday school next week. All right, good. All right, so let's look. That, that one spot, though. God's going to bring Sisera to Barak. That's literally what that's stating. I will draw, as in God's going to bring them to you, but the location, the river is important right here. Go to verse 8. And Barak said unto her, If thou wilt go with me, then I will go. But if thou wilt not go with me, then I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with thee. Notwithstanding, the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honor, for the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And he went up with 10,000 men at his feet. And Deborah went up with him. 
couple things in these three verses here that are, are of note here. Look at Barak's response. Verses 6 and 7, Deborah literally, we're, we're given the idea, again, just based on the way this is written, that one of the very first things that said is, God's commanded you to do this. You already know that. I'm confirming it. He's going to bring the army, the enemy, to you, and he's going to help give you the victory. I will deliver him into thine hand. End of verse 7. God's going to give you the victory. Look at Barak's immediate response. I'm only going if you're going. You don't go. I don't go. Now, is that him wimping out? I've heard that preached before that Barak really wasn't truly that strong of a follower of God that he was just wimping out. He just got introduced to God's prophetess and judge, and she was able to determine before ever any indication that Barak told her what God had said, she told him. Meaning, she likely has a better relationship with God than he does. Why wouldn't he want God on his side? Look at the children of Israel screwed up a couple different times throughout their history. Oh, not a couple, a couple dozen, hundred, a lot of times, okay? But one of the things that they wanted to do later on in their history is they decided to bring the Ark of the Covenant to battle with them. Do you remember that moment? They lost the Ark of the Covenant. The Philistines took it, had it for several months, and then God cursed them so badly they, they sent it back of their own free will. Do you remember that whole storyline there, that whole account? Why did they want to take the Ark of the Covenant with them? The presence of God. That is God's physical seat amongst mankind. They wanted God with them. Barak's doing the same thing because this is the one lady he knows that has direct contact with God. You realize in the Old Testament, if you wanted a prayer answered, what were you required to do if you were a Hebrew? Sacrifice, who could do the sacrifice? The priest. You had to go through a mediator to get to God. Well, this lady has contact with God. So what's Barak trying to do? He's trying to keep God on his side. He's no wimp. He's smart. The smartest man is the man that keeps God on his side. And by the way, the dumbest man is the one who thinks he can do it on his own. The Bible uses a very strong word for that, and it's called a fool. Fool has said in his heart, there is no God, so you don't need him. Barak's not a wimp. Barak's not a fool. Barak wants God to do exactly what he said in verse 7 and deliver the enemy into his hand. So what's he saying? You lady, you know God. You come with me I, or I don't go because I got to have God here because I can't do this without God. So you're coming with me. And look at her response. I will surely go with thee. Like no hesitation. Okay. You do realize this puts her as one of a very few women who have ever gone into battle anywhere in your Bible. In, anywhere in your Bible. And she's just like, yep, let's go. Does anybody know the average odds of dying in battle in the ancient world? They were really high. And usually not from the wound, not from like actually like, you know, being stabbed. It was usually from like infection that set in after you got home. Because medicine wasn't terribly stellar at the time. So she just voluntarily, right off the bat, yeah, I'm going, cool, let's go. That, that gives us, by the way, another indication that this is a pretty boss lady right here. She's a prophetess, called of God to tell the people, thus saith the Lord. She's also a judge, so God's put her in a 
position of uh, political and physical leadership, not just spiritual leadership, which, by the way, gives us a very strong indication that there was no man strong enough to do that at the time, so God had to call the next best thing, which was a woman. Because he didn't have any guys that were willing to do it. God's going to use whoever he needs to use whenever he needs to use them. I'm going to repeat that statement until we finish this book because it's everywhere in this book. He's used the weakest, the strongest. In this case, he's using a lady because he doesn't have any men that are willing to have a relationship that close with him. And her immediate response is, yeah, I'm going. And right after that, in my Bible, I, I will surely go with thee. And then there's a colon, correct? Do you see that? Punctuation is important, okay? The very next statement until uh, the word woman coming up here, that is Deborah's prophecy. It says, notwithstanding the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honor, for the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. This is the prophecy I mentioned earlier that, De that God chose to record of Deborah's that gets proven to be true later on. She's also warning ba Barak right up front. You're not going to get any glory out of this one because you don't win. Somebody else does. That's an interesting thought. He's just been called of God to lead the army to free his people from bondage, but he doesn't get the glory. How many of us would be willing to take on that position when we find that out? Men especially, how many of us would be willing, yeah, I'll go do all the dirty work, but I don't want any of the praise or glory or honor. I don't even want to... No, nah, somebody else can have all that. We might say that because upfront humility makes us look like a good Christian. But in the back of our head, we're like, how come nobody said thank you? And then we'll whine about it in the back of our head in the shower for like the next like 19 years, okay? <laughs> but God's, God's telling him right up front, you're going to win. In fact, actually God's saying, I'm going to win through you, but you won't get any of the glory. Now, for his sake... God still gave him some of the glory. His name's recorded in scripture. Amen. Thousands of years later, and God's like, look, this guy's still worth remembering because he's a good God. And Barak did the work. So just thought I'd note that. And Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulon and Naphtali to Kadesh. And he went up with 10,000 men at his feet. And Deborah went up with him. So these guys, they, they head into uh, this battle. They go up to Kadesh. And at this point, you have to give Barak a little bit of credit. He meets this lady, fairly well known, because everybody, all the children of Israel came to her for judgment. She's known to be a prophetess. Introductions. Hey, God already told you to do this. Wait, how did you know? Prophetess. Remember, like, it's, it's on the name plaque, okay? We're going to go to war. God's going to help you win. You're not going to get any credit. I'm only going if you go with me. All right, let's go. Barak's got some incredible faith so far. Incredible. By the way, he's remembered for that incredible faith. He's not actually remembered for winning the war. He's remembered for his faith, and I can prove that. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. Yeah. Hebrews chapter 11. This is called the Faith Hall of Fame. By the way... The Hebrews didn't call it that. We called it that in the modern era because Hall of Fames didn't exist in the ancient world. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Faith Hall of Fame, God goes through in this chapter and just basically recounts some of the, if you will, famous people throughout Scripture and what they were known for and their, their leaps of faith. 
And many of them, it genuinely was a leap of faith. Look at verse 32. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also and Samuel and of the prophets. Barak's listed in the Faith Hall of Fame here. Deborah's not. JL is not. None of the other, if you will, major characters in this plot line are listed as having this great faith. But Barak was. Gives us an, an idea of just the type of man that he was. God's been working on him. You're going you're gonna to deliver the people. Meets this lady who says, God told you you're going to deliver the people. But you're not going to get any credit for it. And throughout history, he's not actually remembered as the one that won that battle. It was a lady. Prophecy comes true, and we'll get to that. But he's remembered for his faith. Because sometimes that's all it takes. Who is going to win this battle according to verse 7 of Judges chapter 4? God. He said, I will deliver. doesn't say you will deliver. It says, I. Barak had to trust that. God will fight our battles for us if we'll trust him. But most of the time, we think we're strong enough to handle it. And you know what? Quite frankly, sometimes we are. For a little while. How many of you, without sharing weird testimonies, can be honest that you fought some battles on your own and you made it through, but you came out worse for the wear? Yeah, I'm pretty sure all of us can account to that. Why? Because we're human. And we think we got this. Okay? I, I, I make fun of old people. At the gym that I go to, I am the old people. And that's not a joke. I was there the other night working out, and there's two other guys that I regularly see now, John and Mike. They're both in their early to mid-50s. Mike actually owns the state record on bench press for over the age of 50. He benches about 300 pounds as a 55-year-old dude. It's, he's my size, too, so short people rule, just tall people. <clears throat> Thought I'd throw that out there, okay? But the three of us are over there kind of working out together and ch chatting and stuff like that, and I look around for a split second, and easily, easily, we've got 15 to 20 years on everybody else in that gym that night. <sighs> yeah. Thanks, Donna. I feel better now. No, it did. It genuinely it felt a little bit weird because here we are doing all this work. And the older we get, it gets harder and harder and harder to do the same basic things. What I'm lifting and I'm working my brains out to lift, it's some of the heaviest stuff I've ever moved. There's this like, you know, 19-year-old kid over there and that's, that's his warm-up. I'm like, I hate you and your steroids and whatever else you're on. It's like, it's not even fair. And it's like, you know, there's, there's this like, you know, 21-year-old girl and she's bench pressing what I deadlift. And I'm like, what? That was a joke. That's not true. I, <laughs> I hope. All right? But it takes a lot more work the older we get to do some of the same basic stuff that we did when we were younger. Why? Because we don't have the strength there. We don't have the stamina there. So why don't we trust God? when we're more and more worn out instead of trying to take more on ourselves. Didn't he promise to take our burdens if we'd give them to him? 
Didn't he promise that his, his yoke is light? But for whatever reason, we choose to kick him out of the other half of that yoke and carry that junk all by ourselves. Barak doesn't have any. Find me a single moment in anywhere in chapter four or five where Barak questions God. Not once. And as a man, he's not even getting credit for the work he's about to put in, but he's still just, okay, whatever God says, let's do this. But ma'am, you've got to come with me because you've got God on your side and I need that. that. That's an example. That's why he's in Hebrews chapter 11. Because that faith is what changed his nation. It wasn't his, it wasn't his leadership skills because frankly, he wasn't the leader, was he? It wasn't his fighting skills because you remember these people are in servitude. They don't have advanced weaponry and technology. They're probably using farm implements. So it wasn't that. It wasn't his fierceness in battle because God's the one that delivered them. It was his faith that changed everything. If we'll catch that one portion of chapters four and five, that's all we need to move forward and we can conquer anything that comes in our way. The problem is, more often than not, it doesn't matter what age we're, age bracket we're currently sitting in, we think we can handle it. Oh, I, I've dealt with that kind of stuff before I got this. We never once consult God. We never ask God. And this is case in point because this is more than likely the same people with the chariots of iron that Judah and Simeon came up against and quit. There's no indication in, of, in Scripture that they asked God for help and here we are a century and a half later and they have to finally get the job done. Why? Because there was no faith. Barak had the faith to do this. Let's keep going, okay? Keep going. Verse, uh, verse 11, now Heber, we're introduced to a brand new human being. This particular chapter, if you have actually read through it in the last couple of weeks, like I've been asking you to do, please read through it. Where it, it, It's kind of almost like a movie script. And I know I've said that and it's a weird way to phrase that. But if you think about it in that format, it actually makes a little bit more sense because when you're watching a film, you're introduced to characters. And usually when you're introduced to a new character in a movie or TV show, they make it weirdly obvious, especially if it's a bad guy. It's either super obvious and you're like, oh, he's the bad guy. Anything you've ever seen where it was like Murder, She Wrote, right? any Murder, She Wrote episode, you know who the bad guy is like eight seconds after they introduce them. Why? Because they're wearing all black or they have like a curled mustache and that includes the lady characters, okay? It's just, it's, there's just something about that, that style of murder mystery when the bad guy comes in. It's like he never walks in, he like slinks in the room and you're like, ah, that's the bad guy, you know. Read through this and can I, can I do something like straight up out of Barney here? Use your imagination for a split second while you're reading the Bible. This is real life. This happened. These are real people. This isn't a story. This isn't fiction. It's an account. But you have to read it and let your brain go just a little bit and read it like a movie script. And then let's jump in here in verse 11. Now Heber the Kenite, which is of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses had severed himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent into the plain of Zaanim, which is by Kadesh. And they showed Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, was gone up to Mount Tabor. And Sisera gathered together all his chariots, even 900 chariots of iron, and all the people that were with him from Harasheth of, Je of the Gentiles unto the river of Kishon. 
And we're introduced to this new guy, Heber the Kenite. And it, it gives us some, some moments right here. He's of the children of Hobab. So he's related to, says the father-in-law of Moses. He's related to Moses. By the way, telling us that he is a Kenite, or Kenite, if you want to, gives us a little bit better indication of who he is. Jump to Genesis chapter 25. Let's look at who this man is and how he is in this particular area. He actually has some claim to this land in this area. The Kenites in general did. <clears throat> Genesis 25, look at verse 1. Then again, Abraham took a wife. This is after Sarah has died. Took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bare him Zimram, and Jokshan, and Medan, and Midian, and Ishbak, and Shua. And Jokshan begat Sheba, and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Ashurim, and Latushim, and Leumim. Thank the Lord we've picked out, like, you know, much more basic names, like... Caden, Jaden, Braden, and Graydon, okay? All right. And the sons of Midian, Ephah and Epher, and Hanak and Abida and Eldea, all these were the children of Keturah, okay? This particular group, if you actually break this down and their, if you will, their full genealogy, the Kenites are children of Abraham. Who else is of the children of Abraham? Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael. We've got this whole breakdown. These are half-siblings, if you will, of the Israelites. Who did God give all that land to? Abraham, correct? And his seed? These people are in the land because they actually have at least some level of claim to it because they're related. Are we okay? But look at what it says about Heber specifically. He had severed himself from the Kenites. He decided to do something a little different. Maybe he didn't like who his family was. We've all had moments like that, by the way. Okay. And pitched his tent onto the plain of Zaanim, which is by Kadesh. He followed in the same vein as Lot. He didn't want to be part of the group that's directly connected to God, he liked what was happening with the other group of people. So he severs himself, moves his tent. Why? Because he liked what was happening with the world. He wanted to be closer to what was happening with them. By the way, in his given moment, this would have been a more profitable place to be. Think about it. The Israelites and all of their family members are in servitude. By separating himself and moving towards the enemy, he may have actually been able to get himself out of servitude and into relative freedom. Are we okay? If you've got to read this in, in, in context and in the timeline here, Heber's a traitor to his own people in more ways than one. The Bible gives us one direct way that he's a traitor. And they showed Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, was gone up to Mount Tabor. He pointed out, hey, did you know they're building an army and they're moving them over here? He just betrayed some of his own family. This guy's a bad guy. Like I said, Bible introduces him in a pretty profound way as a bad guy. But he's actually a bad guy, I believe, in more ways than one. Because he separated himself during a time of slavery and servitude. Why? Because where he pitched his tent into the plain of Zanim, that's right outside of where Jabin's kingdom is. 
He's doing exactly what Lot had done when Lot and Abraham split the first time. Are we okay? We paying attention here so far? He has split. Why? Because by separating himself from the people that are in any form of servitude and putting himself in a position closest to those in charge, he very likely got himself out of some level of servitude and had he has to have some kind of connection here with the military and with the people that the powers that be. Why? Because he was able to get direct contact with Sisera. Which means he sold himself out to the enemy for some level of profit or gain. Had to have. Had to have. So this guy's a traitor on more than one level. Are we good so far? One of the bad guys. Okay? And look at verse 14. And Deborah said unto Barak, Bible, in this particular passage, the Bible kind of jumps back and forth between characters and groupings here. And we're back into Deborah in verse 14. And Deborah said unto Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? And here's where we're going to pause because I told you, Barak is remembered more for his faith than anything else that he did. And Deborah's reminding him here, God's got this. That, that's somewhere buried deep in the Hebrew there, I promise. But it, it's actually kind of written there. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? Because God said, I will deliver. Not you, I. God has everything under control if we'll let him actually be in control. And the example of Barak, totally worth a reread. It's totally worth a restudy. Why? Because his faith changed his people. His faith freed those around him. His faith changed history. Is our faith on a level that it can change those around us, let alone change history? Or are we the type that's going to, oh, I can take care of this myself, and we won't be remembered for anything? You do realize that, read through your Bible. The people that changed the world changed the world because they had faith in God. They did something about it. Look at our founding fathers of this country. They did so out of a faith that God would help them win. Faith changes everything. But we have to decide at some point that we need God on our side, just like Barak did when he asked Deborah to go with him or he wasn't going to do anything. Look at when, when Jacob wrestled with God. I'm not going to go, let you go unless you bless me. We need to have that level of faith that we're not doing anything unless God's on our side. We do so and we can change the people around us and we could possibly impact history. Other than that, we're just going to be a blip on the radar. And I don't know about you, I don't want to be a blip on the radar. I want to leave an impact. We're the old people in church. At some point, we won't be part of this church anymore. We'll be in heaven. Will you have an impact on the group of people that come after you? That'll be determined by one thing and one thing alone, your faith. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for everything you do for us.